You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, this is Dave Pell, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Dave Pell. He's the author of Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Nervous Breakdowns in the Year That Wouldn't End. Dave, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Wow. You you wrote you wrote the you wrote the quintessential 2020 yearbook for the world. <laughs> yeah, what a terrible mistake that was for my psyche. But yeah, it's uh it's it's about 2020 is sort of the uh the anchor for it, but it's really about today's America and there's almost not any topics in the book that aren't still percolating. Uh, in today's political and health world, unfortunately, from the latter part. Yeah, it's it, man, what a trip! Like just to have what it, one, what a trip to dive into something that's a book about that. Because I don't even think I know how to write about anything that's happening now without having a nervous breakdown. I'm still writing. All my characters are in 2019 ish. <laughs> Yeah. So how did you get your head around that where you really had to stick with the, you know, with something that's kind of rough and that we're still in and that there doesn't seem a lot of solutions yet? Yeah. I mean, it was doubly bad for me, really, because I write this newsletter called Next Draft, where I cover the day's most fascinating news. So on any given day, I was sort of writing about October and during Trump's last year. And also after I finished that writing about May. So I was sort of doing double, double duty during 2020. So that, that got to be a bit much after a while, although I've sort of built up a pretty thick skin from uh, sort of entering the news and then pulling out the most interesting stuff and sharing it with people for so long that I have sort of built up a bit of a um, callous to having it affect me emotionally. In fact, I, one thing that I learned during 2020, which surprised me, was that a lot of my friends, even who ones who aren't necessarily that into the news, and certainly none of them are as obsessed with it as I am, actually were emotionally much more distraught than I was um, during the dark days of 2020, because I had the benefit, I think it's a benefit of having to professionalize it. So, you know, if you're... Uh, covering a disaster it's not as bad as experiencing the disaster because <laughs> you have to do something the whole time so and what i do daily my goal or my job is to make you feel something so mm. that sort of alleviates me from feeling something because that doesn't matter what i feel it just matters i have a goal in mind every day here's how i want you to feel about this story or this event and so that sort of takes some of the pressure off actually feeling which has been a model i've followed throughout my life and career in the news actually is avoiding introspection by just going out into the news world and counter punching off of that. Yeah. So, so when, and when we, and when you're putting together your, uh, your daily newsletter, the uh, you, you want your, your, you do have something in your mind where you're like, I want my audience to, I, I want them to feel this about it. Do you, are you trying to like maybe uh, shift it a little bit or give more, um, more context or possibly actual truth. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm definitely shooting for truth. And um, I'm, you know, my, my logo is a head and I think of my newsletter next draft as a modern day column. So it is definitely the news through my, my prism. So yeah, in a lot of cases, I'm just sharing the news because I don't have a specific take on every story, of course, but on the big things um, and certainly the big things in 2020, I had a very strong opinion. Um, unfortunately, like everything, it became much more political than I had intended or that I built it to be. But I just made the decision, even if it costs me readers, even if it results in hate mail, um, it's important for me to tell the truth, ultimately. And I thought, uh, you know, both of my parents had grown up in uh a fascist world surviving the Holocaust. So I figured the least I can do is pass along their view of how they see what's happening in 2020 America or today's America to my readers. You know, if that loses a few people, 
too bad, you know? Um, so yeah, I do want people to see things from a certain perspective by the stories I choose. I'm sort of making a, a bias in terms of what I think is important. And then a lot of times in my description of the story, you know, sometimes I'm just trying to make you laugh or make you be entertained. And that often happens all in the same newsletter. But on the big issues, I definitely have a position and I'm trying to share that position. It's yeah, the 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 being the laughing and being entertained. I feel we've we're losing that as a culture because I'm finding less things to laugh at. And I, you know, I'm going this is what I've this is what I've done to soothe my soul the last few weeks. I finally watched Archer, that that animated TV series. I don't I don't know if you've heard uh-huh. of it. Yeah. And it, it just went over my head when it came out. I'm like, I didn't really give a crap about it. And then I'm watching it now. And it's just like that is like soothing comedy to me. Whereas before I would have rolled my eyes at it. But it's just so hard to find um, comedy. And it's, it's kind of hard to extract comedy in what we're in. You know, yeah. Even, even I mean, late night TV shows, I, I'm like, you guys got no jokes anymore. <laughs> so right. Yeah, it is the, the line between our usual lives and the news has gone from being blurred to being totally obliterated. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's healthy for people, even though I know it's more do as I say, not as I do. I do live it. It is my career. It's my obsession. But I don't advise other people to get that wrapped up in it or certainly not to get wrapped up in everything that pisses you off on Twitter. You know, I can see one tweet (laughs) that just makes me mad or, you know, maybe I'm at my kid's basketball game or something. I shouldn't be mad about some news personality that I don't know how to take design to make me angry, you know, but I think the intersection of humor um, as sort of a defense mechanism that we all used in 2020 with all the memes and the craziness is actually one of the interesting parts. I try to focus on it a bit in my book also because um, my dad was a, um, I don't like to call him a Holocaust survivor because he actually fought. He joined the partisans. He was his only member of his family to survive. And he uh, got a gun, joined the partisans and, blew up trains and was a pretty heroic guy. There's actually, he wrote a book about himself also. Um, What's that? What's that book called? That that book is called taking risks. He wrote it with a Jewish scholar named Fred Rosenbaum. And it's a great book actually. Um, And what's your dad's name? His name is Joseph Pell. Okay. Uh, So he passed away during 2020, like so many people, not of COVID, but he was just 96. So Um, it was a doubly sad year uh, for my family, but Um, One thing he said in about 2015 that really I kept with me uh, during 2020, especially, was that uh, um, when Trump was giving his speeches, my dad was anything but a um, Marin or Santa Cruz liberal. Uh, He was probably voted Republican for most of his life. Like I said, he survived because of uh, violence. Uh, You know, he didn't have much. Uh, I mean, he, he was a great guy, but I don't think he just wouldn't strike a person as he's probably the least hysterical person in the world. So when he mentions connections to what he saw as a child, to what he saw as today's America, it, it really sticks for me. And one thing he said when Trump was first running was, you know, this guy's speeches remind me a lot of Hitler's in the early days because, you know, Everybody used to laugh at Hitler, too, and thought it was hilarious and made fun of him. And there were a ton of cartoons and columns that made fun of him. And people didn't take it seriously enough that other people, what they thought was funny, was serious. And I really saw that in 2020, where there were so many moments that were overtly hilarious. Some of it was just, okay, we're creating memes in order to survive, you know, on social media. You don't just want all bad news. You have to make fun of the politics and the health issues. Otherwise, you know, you're going to go crazy, but there were other stuff like the, um, you know, the four seasons landscaping press conference when uh, Rudy Giuliani thought he was going to be giving a press conference about the election uh, at the four seasons hotel that ended up being scheduled at that landscaping outfit, you know, a few, a few minutes outside of Philadelphia. And it was sort of surreal and hilarious and ridiculous that he actually went on with that. And there were other moments like that throughout the year, you know, Trump suggesting that maybe we want to put, you know, try putting UV light from the inside or disinfectant on the inside. Um, You know, we were cracking up at that and it was justifiable. It was funny, but 
as we saw as COVID got worse and worse, the things that one half of America were cracking up about, another half of America was taking seriously enough to risk their lives on right to their deathbed. Talking about people in Iowa emergency rooms who to their very last breath are insisting that COVID is not real and it's a democratic plot and they don't want to be intubated. Um, So I, I just really think that area of humor is a healing thing, but it's also can be a warning sign when you don't take what's happening seriously enough and what you're seeing with your own eyes. It shouldn't be an escape from reality. It should just be a salve for the moment. The, um, you know, it's, it's so strange because I, I've, I've been thinking about uh, this too, the, that um, how, how far away we are from world war two. And like, you know, I'm, I'm 52 years old. So my grandpa was, you know, he was in Norway during world war two. And, and I, I knew him for, you know, until he died till I was in my, you know, I was like 30 years old or whatever. And so I have a direct connection with someone who was part, you know, and you have a direct connection to someone who was like really a part of world war two that I don't think people younger than us are going to have that connection and have those stories and also understand the personalities of the people who came out of world war two, which was, you know, I wish, I wish my grandpa, I wish I could have a conversation now at my age with my grandpa at his age, because I would understand him a lot more. And, you know, it's like everything he was saying was kind of going over my head and I didn't get it about Nazi occupation and all that stuff. And then it's just like, Oh wait, that's what that was what he was taking that and then bringing it to America and had his own kind of don't get outside of this bubble because things can get really bad and I'm just sitting there rolling my eyes going yeah okay you know I'm gonna go to a punk show now I don't know what you're talking about grandpa (laughs) yeah I mean it's funny that definitely the the core reason why I wrote the book is a lot of what you're talking about there I was really lucky my dad lived to be 96 my mom is in her 90s now. Both of them were Holocaust survivors. So this was a common uh, issue around my dinner table as a kid, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust. It was sort of the shadow. As I say in my book, most defining moments of my life took place before I was born. It's just that's the yeah. way it is when both of your parents are uh, experienced something like that. But, you know, and it certainly drove my oh, news okay. addiction. That's when my parents spent so much time in front of, you know, CNN in the early days and you know, why they still watch it um, or my mom still watches the news and pays close attention because the news had such a huge impact. What was happening, world events directly affected their lives, you know. And um, one day, the day I really decided to write the book was uh, right before the quarantine stuff started uh, in 2020. I was going to lunch with my dad and we were walking towards the restaurant in the rain and he was complaining for the millionth time, really, um, during the Trump era, why aren't people in the streets? I don't get it. Why aren't people taking this seriously? And like I said, least hysterical person you've ever met. So he saw these warnings because he had seen warnings before. And I said, you know, I just think people in my generation, they're concerned about it, but they just don't think what happened to you could ever happen here. Right. He like stopped in his tracks and just says, said, you think when I was a kid, I thought it could happen there. And I thought, Oh shit, that's a message that, Uh, I need to share with people. Um, I need to get out there. You know, my brand is to mix humor, a lot of sugar with the medicine. So the book is, you know, at least 70% funny. But with that sugar, I do want to get the medicine across that people understand what was happening in 2020, how close we came, you know, as we learn more and more, it turns out all the concerns are more and more validated. Uh, But I do think what you mentioned about wishing you could talk to your grandfather. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, authoritarianism, which we never thought we'd see in America, or at least not in this day and age, is creeping up in America. And even more so authoritarianism and anti-Semitism are reaching, you know, decades long highs across Europe. I don't think that's a coincidence that many of the people who have seen the rise of fascism and seeing how bad anti-Semitism can get are no longer with us. Uh, I don't think that's the coincidence that the things are rising because of that. It's different. It's different hearing it. Look, if I come on, you know, 
we're, we're Bay Area folks, right? But if I go on a radio station somewhere in the Midwest and say, hey, Trump's speeches remind me a lot of the messaging Hitler used, you know, I'm a re- immediately written off as a liberal hysteric snowflake, right? And and I, I feel the same way when I hear people making uh, comparisons, you know, there is n- nothing to compare really to the Holocaust and certainly not what we're experiencing. But when somebody with my dad's background and experiences said, says he's worried about it or he doesn't know why people aren't in the street that changes the dynamic completely and the fact that there's fewer and fewer of those people around to do it is a huge threat right now it's it it, it blows my <clears throat> it blows my mind so you know i i went news blackout myself in 2016 when when trump got elected you know, I, I used to be an NPR guy. I'd listen to NPR. There was, you know, and I, because I, I'm in LA now, I got to drive, I drive a lot, right? I'm <clears throat> commuting. So it was NPR and this is great. And then all of a sudden it's just like, I don't want Trump in my consciousness. And it was just like, yeah, I agree. With, I agree with these news. You know, I kind of agree with this stuff, but I don't want it 24 <clears> seven. <throat> I went completely news blackout because I'm like, I want to keep my sanity. And, and these, and it was almost part of it. I mean, it's, part of it almost felt like and it, it as we've gotten out of it and as you know as as the jokes kind of been on stuff like cnn or whatever where they've lost a ton of ratings after trump's out of office and it was almost like because they fetishized this figure to get ratings and then now they've lost the now they've lost the figure so what do they do um i don't know where i was going with my point but <laughs> but uh i yeah maybe you do I do. Yes, I do. Uh, Yeah. News organizations, even ones that we would associate with truth, uh, became overly obsessed, especially cable news with Trump. Um, Not that it wasn't a big story, not that it shouldn't have been covered. But what happened was over the decades leading up to Trumpism, we saw, especially with CNN, sort of a slide away from reporting and towards panels. If you turn on CNN right now, I can almost guarantee it's not a reporter out in the field telling you one of seven or eight stories that day. It's an anchor talking to two or three reporters sharing their opinions about the news of the day. And that stuff can be valuable, but not 24-7. And that's basically what CNN became. It wasn't it didn't happen just during the Trump era. It sort of started with the first Gulf War when they had some people on the scene there actually ducking from, uh, you know, you could hear the explosions in the background, but because they had people on the scene, uh, CNN sort of became uh, ironically sort of taken more seriously by the broader news establishment during the first Gulf War. But then they covered just that story nonstop and it went to a higher extreme during the OJ trial where right. um you know they realized that <laughs> it's just yeah, much it's just, much... just so, so mind-blowing that i just that the irony of that is like cnn made all their money off the gulf war and then they made it all off the oj trial and yeah, it's what, so like it's yeah it, it just it kind of says it all right there kind of well what the two things have in common is that it was a focus on a single story and what they mm-hmm. realized over those years was that it was much not only much cheaper to cover a single story but it makes sense from a viewership standpoint if you're not thinking about reporting as the important fact but you're thinking of viewership you know when you know every character uh like you did during the oj trial and you know every step of the process you know any time day or night you can flip on cnn and you're up with the story and you can relate to it and you're connecting to it right it's a blurred line between entertainment and news but it's the same single story you know and so that's what we saw really uh, explode during the Trump years. You know, I like to say the Trump era was like the white Ford Bronco drive if it had lasted for four years. (laughs) It's never ended. And, um, you know, that was uh, damaging to uh, viewers. Um, Oh, I I think it's very disappointing on the human human consciousness beyond belief. I think it's, I think... You know, it's also a win for Trump. You know, it's all it is. That is all it is. I mean, forget about even just him specifically, but just the goal of someone trying to um, have minority rule, let's say, is to create hate among groups and to create an obsession with just him. Right. You can put up a giant poster of a, a dictator on a wall 
and somebody can put graffiti over that. But either way, the focus is that dictator. So when you have 100% of your focus on one person like that, it's a benefit to that person. And, you know, we knew every character, we knew every detail of it, you know. Um, anytime you'd go to a dinner party uh, before the pandemic anyway, you know, it was inevitable every table was ultimately talking about that, you know, no matter where you went, if you went on a hike, if you walked by somebody, you would hear them talking about um, the Trump saga, you know, some of it was valuable. It's good that we understand how laws work in America, how vulnerable the American system is to somebody just deciding, no, I'm just going to break every rule and see what happens. And so far, the answer is nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, it's good that we know that, that we probably need more laws and fewer norms. But to obsess only about that, you know, is a huge detriment to other news. You know, I mean, the, the Trump era was like a great time to be in other criminal activity because there were no journalists on that story. I got so much criticism from longtime readers of my newsletter who would email me and just say, man, you used to write about all these different topics and now it's just Trump, Trump, Trump every day in politics. Why don't you just go back to doing what you were doing before? And I always responded, go find me those stories. Yeah. I'm out there every day going to 75 sites and I'm not seeing those stories. The stories that you remember from 2015 are not there anymore because every serious journalist was on the Trump story, both because it had the most attention and because it was so important, but there was no sort of metering of that at all so of course people like you either turned it tuned it out or people would get depressed or down and i think there's you know we also saw during you know the years leading up to trump and during the trump era that people became obsessed with knowing every single detail at the second it happened about what was happening with trump or what's happening in the news or what was happening with the inner workings of politics that shouldn't even bother us in a republic and, you know, what I think people don't realize who are more sort of, I mean, I'm not a journalist, I'm a consumer of the news, but I sort of, I call myself the managing editor of the internet. I'm sort of, uh, I've professionalized news consumerism. So Which I, I love, I, and I love your logo, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so I, I like to tell people, you know, the reason that we feel that spending time watching or consuming news is a higher value than, say, watching Netflix or listening to some music or going on a walk or entertaining ourselves in a million other ways, just sitting there in silence is not, uh, it didn't come out of nowhere, right? The first job of any news organization is to convince you of the value of the product. You know, this has been taking place over years. And there's, there's a big thick line between being a well-informed republic and being totally news obsessed and following it every minute, you know? So like the best example of that is news notifications on your phone, you know, like you're not Batman. You're not going to go fly to the site <laughs> of a mudslide in Peru or right. a Trump speech in DC and do something about it. And it's not going to change your political beliefs or the way you vote or the level of how informed you are. The only news you need to be notified of is something that's happening within 20 feet of where you're standing. Otherwise, it can wait until later or in most things, like most things on the Internet, it can just wait until never. Um, but that obsession that we have, an addiction and compulsiveness to try to absorb the news as it's coming in and like me and many others to comment on it. You know, it's uh, if you're, you know, I'm a I'm an active Twitter addict, you know, so all these things I'm talking about, I'm it's like scared straight when they used to take the kids to jail to meet <laughs> the prisoners. I, I'm like that prisoner. I'm not telling you how I act. I'm telling you what I've learned from my my dark experience. But, you know, I'm a Twitter addict, you know, and even if somebody dies or there's a news breaks or there's a new Apple product, you know, my my need for that dopamine and my urgency to give my take on a topic even if i really don't have any expertise or anything to say on it is so powerful so those two things in common you know it's uh our obsession with the news and our need to chime in with our opinion on every single thing it's so counterproductive in terms of our mental health and it's also totally unproductive in terms of our republic you know nobody I mean, nobody who 
thinks different than me politically is reading any of my tweets. The divide in terms of our social networks and our news absorption is so dramatic. So you can watch CNN, you can watch more mainstream stuff, uh, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post and think, that's it. You probably thought that 50 times during the Trump era. That's it. He's done. You know, but the story you're absorbing is not even entering the consciousness of the other American news bubble. Um, so you're like screaming into it's not just screaming into a void. You're like screaming into the wrong void. Yeah, um, it's totally useless. And yet there's something in us that makes us feel good still screaming anyway. Not that screaming at a person who opposes you politically would ever work anyway. But, and I understand people's anger. I understand why people are mad about people not wanting to wear masks. I understand why people would be angry about, you know, America's slide and the international stage about so much about Trump that we couldn't believe that anybody would vote for this guy once, let alone again. And that that's, and see, and that's what you're talking I like how you're talking about the divide and the, and the, the belief of like this, and this is kind of what has blown my mind through the whole thing is, and, and the, the screaming thing is really important because when everyone's screaming, it's almost like no one's screaming. It's, it, you know, it's, it's the same thing. I think if everyone screams or if no one's screaming, it kind of feels like the same thing. It's, it's white noise or it's silence. It's there's so, so where's the middle where people can come together. And then, um, and then with, you know, I, in 2016, I voted for Hillary, but I did that with a little bit of throw up in my mouth. This was not the right person, <laughs> you know, when I was like, this was it. What it's like, it's part of me was like disgusted. Trump made it into office, but part of me was disgusted. What a useless piece of crap that we had to offer to go against that. We, I, I blame her actually. And I blame, you know, you know, I blame a lot of people because I don't want to take any blame because I'm perfect. <laughs> it's not that, but it's just like, what kind of tepid, useless people are out there to run the country. And then we, and then we got a Biden in there and it's just like, and look how close that came. And I look at it and I'm like, yeah, of course it came close. Biden's an idiot. <laughs> you know, am I, I'm just like, and you're not supposed to say that because the minute you say Biden's an idiot, then people go, Oh, you're racist. And that's a huge problem because it's like, no, th there are so many layers to it that it's just like, we're, I, I can't believe people can't make fun of Biden. And if they do, they're labeled like, uh, you know, a Trump supporter. And it's just like, no, everyone's an asshole. <laughs> it's just like they, people aren't getting that there's layers to it. And it, and the divide is just too much. It's like, you can't, it's like even call it, you know, and I don't like calling people who support Trump racist. Cause I don't believe, I believe a lot of people have, they actually, you know, they're not the ones screaming in the street, but I do know some people around my tribe. And when I say tribe, I don't mean my 40 people that live with me in my hut, <laughs> but I know some people who voted for Trump and they tell me and they go, please don't tell anyone. And they're like, but I know you're not going to judge me. And I'm like, I know. And part of me gets it because the problem was at the time, this, this is back when, and look, I know nothing about politics, but I do know a little bit about cults. I grew up in a cult. So this is just my angle on it, but like Obama did nothing to the bankers when when our economy crashed and and that was and the whole vibe at that time was like when will our politicians start wearing logos of who they're being sponsored by because everyone's corrupt so he didn't even show that he's not corrupt and it's just like people are like going wait a second and then we, and then we do get this you know buffoon who's a tv reality star and they go oh he's telling us something a little different and I could see the attraction in that. I don't want to go anywhere near it because that's just, you know, that's, I mean, I think every president is a sociopath or a narcissist at, at some level. If they were going to go to therapy, you'd just be like, wow, your skeletons are very scary in that closet. I, I, I desire nobody. And when people say like, I mean, when people like glorify Bush, the Bush administration now, they're like, man, wouldn't it be great if we were back in the Bush administration? I'm like, no, that was horrific. We were going to war. We were just uselessly killing people for oil constantly. This this is forgotten now. This is all forgotten. How 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 is all of that so easily forgotten when we got a reality TV show star and then 
these people are actually looking for something. They're looking for their Jesus or whatever. And they think it's, this is it. And it's, and this, it's just the human condition boggles my mind because it scares me that what's, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. I'm independent. I, 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 I think, you know, blue tie, red tie, I it's, it's politics. And they're just, they're going to sling shit at each other. Like, you know, gorillas. I really don't care, but it's just like, they all kind of suck on a certain level. And it's a real shame that everyone sunk so low. And I was, you know, I was just reading your book and by the way, I love how you, your, your book is so punchy and every, every, in every uh, sub subtitle, it's, it's just, it's just like, it's funny and it's on point and And I got, and I got a huge kick out of it. And then I lost my thought, but where was I going with my little, um, my little soapbox on an Apple box that's on stilts? I forgot. I see how awesome my book was. Ah, yes, it was good. No, it's, it's really, I mean, I have a hard time reading it because it's, I have a hard time. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're actually, what you said about putting sugar on it was made sense. You're putting sugar on something that's, and it's just like, oh, wow, I can actually like read this and it, and it feels good to read because you're narr- the way you narrate 2020 is it's like, okay, yeah, this is actually this. I read, I read that and I go, this needs to be out there and this needs to be in the canon of the, you know, library of Congress. And then especially when we come back to it 40 years from now, people. Should yeah. Read this book. Yeah. But, Let me push back a little bit again. Yeah. Uh, it's going, yeah. Uh, yeah. I your, threw a, I threw a lot yeah. out there. So no, I'm, I mean, I, you know, I don't have the same necessarily the same. I know there was an enthusiasm gap with Hillary and that of course, Obama was not perfect and no, no politicians are. And I can't wait till we go back to the day where, we all are dubious about it so that we hold them to account. That's the purpose of yeah, the media. I want, I want corrupt politicians That's what we do. in there. That's fine. <laughs> but I, but I would just say that there, there is a danger. Um, it's a danger that was manufactured in large part by Fox news, but there's a danger of false equivalence in any of these things. Right. So Obama, did he hold the bank accountable or not or not enough? You know, you can debate that. When Obama went to Flint and drank some of the water and said, it's all good. Was that <laughs> helpful? No. You know, I always yeah. felt if I had been managing Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2015, I would have said, go to Flint, get whatever it takes, private investment to get those pipes lead free so people can drink water. And every day stand there and say, well, this guy's putting on a show. I'm doing the work of governing. Yeah. But so I, I share some of the frustrations, but there's one thing to be an imperfect politician in a huge system with all the imperfections of a superpower, um, you know, that has a long way to go and it's gone a long way, but still has a long way to go to be, you know, the perfect union we want it to be and we should hold them accountable. But to compare that, the normal politician and the normal political parties to what has happened in the last five years with Trumpism and the big lie about the election and the insurrection on January 6th. And but the start- election shouldn't have been, even been that close. I, no, that, I know, that, right. I know no, they're no, you can t- be, you can be frustrated <laughs> and feel alienated. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was depressed as hell when the election wasn't, uh, of 2020 wasn't called the first night, even though we were told it wouldn't be, because how could it possibly be close after that yeah. four year disaster? And all the needless deaths from COVID, you know, and the craziness. Yeah. But again, that that goes back to us living in totally different universes about what we're hearing and what we're absorbing. Um, But it's just, I just think it's important that there aren't two sides that are sort of equal, but different in, in today's America. Historically, that may be the truth. But in today's America, you have one party that is wedded to the idea of reducing access to the ballot box that's wedded to the idea of the big lie, uh, which those two things are of course related. Well, what's um, uh, but what's, what's the big lie? Cause I, this is, oh. this is, this is a guy that hasn't been the, the oh, news well, the big, the big or... lie is, you know, the, the big lie is um, based actually on world war two studies where, you know, the big lie about the Jews being responsible for, uh, everything bad mm. in the world sort of caught on and oh, around okay. that everything was 
Oh, is that the way? Uh, was that what the term was in World War II? Yeah, well, at okay. least it was by historians. Yeah. But the okay. big lie today um, that's used by journalists and historians is the fact that the election was not fair and free, and right. that that Trump actually won. So that's what Trump still does. He's married to that idea. Uh, he's putting people in place to um, support that I that will support that idea on the local. And he's level. a sociopath, though, and it, and at the same time. It shouldn't be this close. See, this is what still blows my mind is he he gets to do stupid crap like that as as a as a borderline personality disorder, whatever he is, because there's a forty nine fifty one percent. It's not like right. well, 80, that's part 20. of the tribalism, right? People just you know eighty percent of people are just going to vote for their party no matter what. Yeah, um, other people. There's other things they like about Trump. Maybe it's lower taxes. Maybe it's less government. Maybe it is the racism. Some people, of course, are attracted to the idea that they're worried about the American demographics. It's not a coincidence that just about the time America is becoming more brown than white, uh, we have Trump and Trumpism rise up, right? All these things are connected. Well, um, this, oh, and and, this, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't discount the pain, rage, or anger that also led to people feeling alienated, isolated, left out of the American politics and getting frustrated. You know, the opiate crisis has everything to do with Trump's election, right? What do the Democrats do about that? You know, if you live, you know, out where I live or where we live on the West Coast, that wasn't a big story. But if you live along I-95 between uh, Florida and Appalachia, you know, that was the only story. And year after year, Death after death, it went on. What do we do to hold anybody accountable? Only journalists and writers are holding the Sacklers accountable. So far, the government hasn't done that. So, and I, and I also get that people in different parts of the country feel that liberal elites, quote unquote, look down on them. Most of that is caricaturization and not real, but some of it is real. You know, if you look at the media, television and shows and movies, you know, our average view of the Midwest is like Fargo. You know, that's what gets shown, you know, occasionally yeah. there's a show like uh, Friday Night Lights that shows uh, culture that's religious and Texan that everybody says, wow, these people are great. I can relate to them. You know, that's more realistic. But this sort of, uh, you know, that that divide is really the, the key to all of it. We're so divided right now that lies about each other are able to propagate so freely Um you know, I keep taking the conversation back to World War II, but I know that, you know, the first ghettos ever were the Jewish ghettos created by the Nazis during World War II. And one of the key benefits of them was if you keep getting propaganda how terrible Jewish people are and that they're trying to destroy the German way of life and they're destroying Europe, but your neighbor is a Jew or your friend is a Jew or your relative is a Jew, then you say, well, you're telling me this, but I'm hanging out with this guy every day. I don't see it, you know, but if you take that person out of sight and out of mind and then message it, it's much more of a vacuum that can be filled with these negative perceptions or negative characterizations of people. So what we're seeing in America today is just that, that we have so little contact. Geographically, we have almost no interaction in terms of the television shows we watch. Look at the shows that win the Emmys. Those aren't nearly the most popular shows in most of the country. We have this sort of separate identities almost, you know, in my oh, world, yeah. in my world, Wordle is like the biggest thing ever to hit America right now. And isn't it game. awesome? It is awesome. But, you know, I, for I, I, got, my, I got the of one Americans, today and three, three guesses. <laughs> yeah. You see. So like in our world, that's like shorthand. You know what I'm talking about? We joke yeah. about it. It's yeah. th but those are the things that we need to have connect us again, you know, and those things become less and less. We're not watching the same movies. We're not absorbing the same news. We don't interact even in our local areas. You know, when I was a kid, when you played Little League or whatever, there was the kid whose dad lived in a mansion and there was the kid whose dad worked at San Quentin. Yeah. And we all interacted together and nobody really thought about it that much or certainly never considered like, why wouldn't I be interacting? Why would I be interacting with this person? Right. But today, even on those <laughs> micro interactions, today, uh, where I live, any kid who can afford it signs up for travel ball and gets the better coaching and the better league. And the kids who can't afford it, they do little league. So the, 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 all these areas, economic, geographic, we don't interact. And as long as we don't interact, 
the hate that we feel for each other is going to stay. You know, I always say there's nobody I've ever hated in real life as much as the caricature of the average Trump voter. But when I actually interact with somebody who may have different political beliefs than me, the things that bind us are so much more than the things that divide us. It never even comes up. You know, I'm talking about it's a guy we're talking about dealing with our kids or getting high or watching sports or a million other topics that come up, listening to Howard Stern or whatever. I when I talk to people who are from different walks of life or different political leanings than me. In real life, that stuff never comes up. I coached a little league team with a guy who I know was a Trump voter. He's like, I'm like, you know, the character of a, a liberal snowflake in today's world. You know, I probably was a moderate five years ago, but now I'm like an, a liberal snowflake. But this guy was definitely a Republican, definitely a Trump voter. He was a sheriff. He was armed 24-7. He thought I was totally naive even about my own town because I don't know what really goes on. And therefore, I have these foolish views on crimes and how we should deal with police and all these other things. But we were friends. And the main thing that bonded us was we wanted our kids to have a good experience in Little League and to do well. You know, I cared much more about our joint desire to beat the other team and humiliate the other two coaches on the other team than I cared about his political beliefs. And he was armed once in a while. How how can we get everyone? How can we get everyone to break bread? Because I think if we break bread with people who we assume are our enemies, we realize we have a lot more in common on the human level. And, uh, you know, and then also I really like, and this reminds me of this part of your book about the, um, about your friend who's a Dodgers fan who made you a, a, a giant um, mask yeah. that was itchy on the inside. I'm from say I live in LA. So I live in, I live in enemy territory as far as I'm concerned. Cause I'm, I grew up, you know, in Millbrae, right by Candlestick Park. So, um, but the the hate of the the rivalry of the Giants and Dodgers it gives us something to love and something to hate but I'd still you know I love all my Dodger fan friends here in Los Angeles and when we when we went and go see now you've gone too far I love the fans (laughs) Dodgers need to die like the scum they are but it's it's uh it's funny but but there's there's something and then like how you were just discussing how you wanted to make the coaches you 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 had your bond with your sheriff friend we got to make these coaches eat crow on the other side because our kids are better and there's a there's a playfulness that we need to have that kind of mutual love and hate you know on, on a on a level where the stakes aren't high it doesn't really matter if the, it well, it does matter if the Dodgers win the World Series because we want them to not win it ever again. But it's but at the same time, it doesn't mean that, you know, people are going to die in war or, you know, the, the stakes aren't. It doesn't mean you're going to hate somebody who root for them. That's that's really the key. Right. You know? Yeah. And and how do we it, and and my goal? I mean, I used to, you know, I I love international travel. I think my goal now is to kind of travel the United States a little bit. I want to go. I want to go hang out in weird places in Nebraska, and just have coffee, and and just so I can, just so I can like just kind of not. I don't, who cares if I understand? I'm not. I'm just one human in this whole thing. But just just because that you know, I used to laugh and go, "Oh yeah, the flyover states." But but after, but in the last five years, I'm like, I don't say that term anymore, except I just did. But I don't say that term in a derogatory way because I feel like that takes that just punches down to a ton of people that actually are very proud of how they grew up and what they do and, you know, their communities and their little league teams. And it's, yeah. And it's, I always use on, on that punching down or punching in general, I always think of the uh, like uh, coal miners as one example. I always think of, you know, we're in my neck of the woods, in the Bay area, you know, there's people are, heavy environmentalists and a lot of the VC money that used to go to tech companies now is going to solar or, you know, regenerative farms and, you know, a lot of good things, good things for society. It's great. VCs are putting billions of dollars into world positive things, but the way we position those efforts um, can come off a lot differently. I think than people think to the rest of the country, you know, we downgrade coal so aggressively 
and call for the end of coal and that coal is evil. Well, yes, of course, coal is not good for the environment and we need to make a transition, uh, which is gonna take a long time to renewable energies. But if I'm a third generation coal miner in Virginia and my grandfather died at 55 from black lung and my dad was sick with black lung by the time he was 60 and I'm in the coal mine and my family has been telling me, hey, yes, it's risky what you do. And this is hard work, but you're powering America. Yeah. Um, you know, then if I'm coming in as an investor or a, uh, you know, somebody promoting alternative energies or new energies, the first thing you have to say to that family is thank you. Yes. Not fuck you. Thank you. Yeah. And then say, hey, is there a way that we can transition gradually to energies that are better for the environment and your health and that give you as good or better jobs. You know, like I think back Mark Zuckerberg several years ago did this thing where he wanted to tour all 50 States, you know, but going and visiting every state as the CEO of the world's biggest social network and visiting them, like you're visiting a zoo (laughs) doesn't benefit anybody. If you want to help people or connect with people, then open up a Facebook office in those States. Yeah. It doesn't help them to come visit them and look at them behind the behind the glass door, you know, or whatever. But the right. biggest thing is that this divide that we have is not by accident. There are people who benefit from us being divided. Um, exactly. You know, I, I always yeah. told people when you hate Trump, that's what and when you hate Trump and his voters, that's exactly what he wants. Yeah. If you want to have minority rule, what you want is to overwhelm people with contempt for the other. Uh, and get them either not to vote at all uh, or to only vote against. That's a situation where you can do well without any policies and then do what you want. None of your behavior in office matters because the other person hates the other side even more than they worry about what you're doing. Oh my God. And that's okay. That's towards the end of your book where I just, that was the big, that's the big mic drop, right? Um. Men are divided by two principal impulses, either by love or by fear. It's the, the, the what, Machiavelli. Yeah. <laughs> I, I teach writing for a living too. <laughs> nice. Scary. Scary. I didn't, I'm, I'm scared. How to, no, no, I'm just, I'm saying that ironically because I didn't like looking at you going, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, no. I just, I copy and paste. How do I know how to pronounce anything? <laughs> I didn't do the audio book, so I didn't need to know. Oh yeah, uh, Peter Coyote did. Yeah, amazingly. Yeah. Anyway, but it's I mean, it's about um, we got to go for the love and not the fear. This this you know it's just like let's how do we come together? Not how do we divide? But man, the people above dividing works. It works. It gets me to yeah. Giants and Dodgers games and the root against the Dodgers uh, even more than I care about the Giants. No, I care about the Giants. I've, I'm. I'm it, it, what do you do? But it is it is more fun to uh, and easier to come together over a common hate than anything else. But where it got out of hand, it's nothing new in America, but it, you really saw how out of hand it got when we had a killer virus and we hated each other more than we hated it. You know, yeah, so that's pretty damn scary. Uh, that and- was my most depressing you know, a lot of things about 2020 depressed me and many of them worry me now, but the, the, the missed opportunity um, of that moment, you know, I keep thinking back to like March uh, of 2020 when everything like shut down in a day, my kids were home from school, NBA shut down, uh, you know, we had no idea what was going to happen, we were just learning about washing our hands and masking, it was like everybody was up in the air, you know. And I was walking my dogs with my son, who was 15, uh, 13 at the time. He's 15 now. And, you know, he was asking me a lot of questions. We, we lived at the time with my mother-in-law, who was in her 80s. And both of my parents were in that older zone where they could be in a lot of danger. And he was asking me, is grandma going to be okay? When school going to come back on? Uh, is How long is this going to last? What's going to happen? You know, the typical things you would ask your parent if you're a kid, you know, and a lot of times parents either know the answer or they don't know it, but they give a good enough answer that the kid can feel uh, it's all good, you know, but in the pandemic, you couldn't even fake it. 
You know, it's like, yeah. all I can say is I have no idea, dude. I don't know if grandma's going to be okay. I don't know if school is going to start in a week or in two years. I don't know how this virus works yet. I can't believe what's happening. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. This is unbelievable. And we're all into this together. I don't know. But that moment where we all were sort of adolescents in terms of our intellect about what was happening around us is like the most ripe moment for good leadership to say, let's lock arms, you know, at least lock arms virtually from six feet apart <laughs> and do what we have to do to help each other. And you saw a million examples of that. You know, it's easy to focus yeah. on the negative we saw at the top, but we saw a million examples of that at, a, at the local level. People going on next door email lists and saying, hey, can I bring you food? Can I help you right. out? Uh, you know, all the stuff that Jose Andres did with feeding people all around the country, uh, people, you know, giving huge tips and, you know, payments to their favorite restaurants, yep. uh, supporting healthcare workers with mental health, you know, programs exploded all over the country from the grassroots. But from the top, even a moment that should have divided us was still used to divide us further. Yeah. And that was the saddest part of 2020. If Trump had done it, he would still be president. There's zero doubt about that. If he had attempted to use that moment to coalesce his support, um, you know, he would have won. Instead, he used it to divide us more and more, and people just got frustrated with it. So I don't wish he was still president, but I, I do wish that moment hadn't been missed because it was such a moment to say, this is game time man of course yeah. we have differences but when i see a hurricane blow across uh some state and a bunch of houses blown away i feel the same pain for those people as i'm sure they feel when they see northern california on fire yeah it's like there's bigger things than this political crap we shouldn't be following it along all day long you know if you're sick and you go to the hospital, they don't ask you, hey, what's your political party? You know? <laughs> they might down the road. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But it's just they ask you what your faith just is sad, just in you case know? you die. They go, what's your faith? I'm like, oh, crap. I forgot if I have faith or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just, at that point, you want to name them all, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I Let's just go across the board. So, yeah. So I either I have a good next life. Um, or, or the empty void is kind of just an empty void. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> if it's an empty void, you got nothing to lose by saying, hell yeah, I believe in all the gods. Let's go. Yeah. The empty void. Well, um, uh, oh, and, um, how much fun was it to get Peter Coyote to uh, do the audio book? Uh, that was like a dream really. Uh, yeah. he does, he does, uh, about half of it in a, a friend of mine named John Parsons, uh, who has an incredible voice and has been doing voiceover work for years, but this was his first book, did the other part. But yeah, I never realized how good I was until I heard Peter Coyote reading my work. That's for sure. <laughs> but that was incredible. And he did it all as a favor. Uh, I happened to know him through a friend and I yeah. just sent him the manuscript and he actually emailed back like 20 minutes later and basically said, F you, I don't want to have any more work, but I'm, I'm into this. This is the right voice for this story. So I'll do X number of days. I'll do anything but the whole book, basically. But yeah, no, that was of all the things that have happened during the book process, good and bad, that was by far the best is having him do that. And what exactly did you, what was your exact reaction when you got that email? Where, because the best, the best, the one of the best compliments to get from someone like that is F you, God damn it, I gotta do this. It's just like, it, that's like, that's when you know you've got something good. So, did you go tell your wife immediately? What was, who, who was the first one you told? Uh, that's a good question. Probably my agent before my wife, but uh, I don't remember that. I have a horrible memory, but I'm generally negative. So, it probably lasted for about 12 minutes that I was. Oh, yeah sort of relieved and excited but uh yeah that was that was the that was the the best part of it that it was sort of a third party at that point i hadn't really had much outside feedback of course except for friends who had read it so it was good to have somebody one step removed that was into it for sure yeah. uh, and um but yeah hearing him do it was amazing and he's been incredibly supportive so uh, we are actually, me, him, and our mutual friend, Phil Bronstein, who used to be the editor of the Chronicle uh, out here in San Francisco, did like a, a Zoom 
or recorded interview for our local bookstore. So we had like a, a discussion. So that was really okay. awesome. Also, what, what, what bookstore? Uh, it's called Book Passage, but yeah, up if, in uh, Quarta Madera. Yeah. So if you just go to YouTube, if you want to hear more about the book and stuff like that, uh, it's they, they recorded and leave it up there. So if you just search for book passage, uh, Dave Pell or whatever, uh, it would come up and it was pretty fun. But so, yeah, that kind of stuff was great. You know, uh, I, I, wrote for the, I wrote for the Chronicle for about nine years. Oh, nice. Yeah. I was uh, a stringer, though. I wasn't on staff, but I had six articles a month I had to turn in. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, I, as a kid, I used to get the Chronicle all the time. That was like, you know, that, and then I was like, I only covered uh, music and books. It wasn't like I was, you know, in uh, any of the hardcore journalism, but uh, yeah, but it was, well, that uh, counts it, too for local stuff. Yeah. Music and sports are, you know, two of the biggies, you know, I, I have every print copy of every, you know, hundreds of print copies stuck in my parents' garage up in Fremont that, uh, it's like my, like my scrapbook of it's never going to get any better than this kind of thing. Yeah, no, I know that feeling. That's for sure. <laughs> I have mine from my high school column. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you do. I think you've you've created a very uh, cool, um, a cool thing with what you're doing. So, and, I'm, and oh, I'm, thanks. I'm glad the book came out. Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Hey, how did we do? <laughs> that's, that's the most political I've ever been on this <laughs> podcast.
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.